One of the, the dangers in church, and that you may have experienced this, is that you can go from singing kind of the songs we've just been singing, which are all about Jesus and what he's done and how amazing he is, and you can really get swept up in that, and then the preacher comes up and you can get whiplash. You can go so fast to the opposite extreme and suddenly get kind of beaten down and told what to do and don't do this and do do that, and it can feel a bit like you've visited a personal trainer. Uh, I used to be a member of a gym, um, not for too long, obviously, uh, but uh, I was a member of a gym, and it was quite interesting to watch people coming out of the gym uh, because they were always kind of looking like they were about to die, but there was this kind of smile on their face and this sort of, oh, I needed that, especially the ones that had had a personal trainer. I won't tell you the story about the Polish guy that almost killed me uh, when I had some free sessions with him, but ask me about that afterwards. But there's something in us that feels this kind of, yes, satisfaction when we get told what to do. The problem is that for Christianity and for reading the Bible and looking at the Bible, the danger is that we can miss the entire point because we so want that whiplash. We so want to get our to-do list, right? I must work on this. I must try harder at that. And actually, Christianity doesn't work that way. It's not uh, that God has done something so that we can get into his family and then the onus is on us to get our acts together. That's not the way it works. That's the way the world thinks it works. If you notice the way Christians are portrayed on the media, we're always portrayed as slightly sour and kind of legally, legalistically bound up in rules and regulations, basically living a miserable life, which for some Christians may be true, but it really shouldn't be. When Jesus said, I have come to give you life, life to the full, you would think that it might kind of show, right? And so there's there's this, uh, this kind of contradiction between the way Christianity is presented or uh, understood and what many of us would claim is the truth about Christ and following him. Now, when you're in the epistles, the letters, like James, as we are at the moment, once you get into it some distance, the danger is that it can start to feel a bit like a to-do list. It can start to get a little bit instructional, and maybe that's fine. If that's all that's going on, then obviously that's what we need. But what if there's something bigger going on? What if there's something uh, far more overwhelming than just here is a to-do list? I've been a Christian now for 30-something, 33 years, something like that. And I'm still wrestling and thinking and processing and trying to understand what it means to be a Christian every single day. And that's not because I'm kind of intellectually lacking or something. It's because I'm exploring every day, just by living, the reality of being me. With all the complexities and all the baggage and all the emotional stuff and all the sin issues and all the struggles and all the temptations. And if you ask me to explain Christianity, I can take the exam and I can pass it. But you ask me to live it, and every day I'm going... Oh, ah, that's not easy. It's not as simple as it is on paper. And so this passage that we're going to look at in James is a passage that at first glance could look like, do this, don't do this, don't do this. But I want us to keep it in the context of exploring what it means to live for Jesus. And what is it going to look like when Jesus has got a hold of your life? Because even that thought 
is already transforming the tone. It's not, now you're a Christian, do this, pressure on you. It's, if you've trusted Christ, this is what it's going to look like. As you respond to Christ, as you interact with God, as the Spirit of God is at work within you, this is going to be the picture that's gradually becoming reality in your life. That's an exciting thing. But it's a process, and it can take decades. And so the passage we're looking at, I'll just say this before we read it, there's some debate as to whether James is writing to Christians or to non-Christians. And I think in part of it, he's kind of writing to Christians who are a little bit like the world outside. And in the, in the next part, I think he's really writing to the world outside, but for the sake of the Christians, to show them kind of, hang on, there's a bit of confusion here between you, the changed people, and those who don't know God at all. And when there's that confusion, well, that's concerning, Right? When we look like people who haven't claimed any change, then there's some concern. But ultimately, he gets to focusing right on the Christians. So let me uh, kind of walk us through it, and we will see uh, what he's describing. And hopefully, at the end of this, we won't feel like we've just been beaten up by a personal trainer, but instead, we'll have a sense of conviction where, where we go, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that hits home. Yep, Lord, that's, that's an issue for me. Help me. And also a sense of hope, a sense of, okay, this week, maybe that's a way forward. Maybe that's something that I haven't quite incorporated into living out or trying to live out the Christian life. So hopefully you won't feel beaten up, uh, but uh, instead directed and helped by this. So we're in James chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 13, and... Again, I haven't checked the page. 10.11, is it still? 10.12? 10.13, we are flying. Page 10.13 in a church Bible. Oh, bizarrely and slightly embarrassingly, it's the same in mine. <laughs> Should have noticed that seven weeks ago. Okay, so James 4, starting at verse 13, you'll see the little titles in there, boasting about tomorrow, and then warning to the rich, and then patience in suffering. We're, we're doing all three chunks, okay? And the boasting about tomorrow, I think he's talking to Christians, but they're being a little bit like non-Christians. In the warning to the rich, he's really describing non-Christians, but for the sake of the Christians. And then in the patience in suffering, I think he's got it right focused on us. So let's read it and see. 4 verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, behold, 
the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We'll pause there and then we'll read the other bit in a minute. That's quite serious stuff, isn't it? Those two sections there are quite heavy going. And they, they both begin with, come now you. Come now you. It's, it's kind of like a, a rebuke or a, a warning. I think he's trying to get attention. Okay, and so he's dealing with two issues, the first chunk and then the second chunk. Something about boasting in the first one, something about hoarding in the second. Now, if we tone down some of the language, we might find that it relates to us more easily than if we keep it turned up to the max. So first of all, the first section. Those of you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this place or that place and we'll do business and we'll make a profit. I don't think James is having a go at planning. All right? You might look at that and go, oh, uh-oh, I should never plan anything. I don't think that's what he's saying. In fact, biblically, it's a good idea to plan. The Bible calls you foolish if you don't make plans. If you kind of set about you know, starting a business or building a tower and then you realize, oh, I haven't got enough to do it, that's kind of foolish. The Bible encourages planning. But this passage is rebuking something. What it's rebuking ultimately becomes clear in verse 16. You boast in your arrogance. Boasting is evil. What James is saying here, I think, is this. When... When we're living in this world, as, as humans, we live in a world that's fallen. It's fallen into sin. It's been corrupted. That's been true ever since Genesis 3. And the fallenness that we live in, it's like the air that we breathe. It's all around us. It, it, imagine if you could, uh, interviewing a goldfish in a bowl and asking it a question about the water. It would think you were stupid. It, what water? It's just... This is my environment. This is normal to me. I'm not giving goldfish that much credit. They're not bright. But, you know, that's the the world they live in. And we are a bit like goldfish in that we've been swimming around in fallenness for our entire life. And so we don't see it naturally. We don't understand it easily. And so, therefore, we just kind of are used to it. And remember, fallenness... Right at the beginning, it began with the serpent introducing the thought to the first human couple, you can be like God. You can be in charge. You can be uh, responsible for your own realm and your own reality. And so naturally, for us all as humans, we live in a world where we think we are in charge of our own lives, right? We think that we know what's going to happen. We think that we know what's best for us. And that knowing, in quotes, what's best for us can manifest as boasting. That overconfidence that I'm going to do this and it's going to lead to this and the result will be this. I'm going to do this business and I'm going to do it in this way and it's going to result in this kind of profit. 
or I'm going to put money on this team or this horse at these odds, and I know it's going to work out. And, and as humans, that's natural for us to think that somehow we can figure out what's coming. But it's boasting. Interestingly, if you turn the coin over, the same first thought, I know what's best, I know what should happen, is the same first thought that riddles some of us with anxiety. For some, it manifests in boasting. For others, anxiety. I know what's best, but what if it doesn't happen? Actually, do we even know what's best? Do you see the problem with it? The problem of the whole system of fallenness is that it's broken. It begins with the assumption that I know what's best for me. I know what's going to happen. I know kind of how things work in this world. And the truth is, we don't. And so what James goes after here is not planning. Planning is wise. But as long as it's planning under God, if God wills, this. If, if God wants it to happen, that. But so easily we push God to the side, puff out our chest, and act as if we're God. Well, the problem with that is we don't know the future. Um, so we think, uh, we assume, especially those of us that are younger, and I'll just about include myself in that category still, we think that we're permanent. But James says, actually, you're not. You don't know what tomorrow will bring your life it's like a mist remember the winter it's nice when the summer comes you kind of forget but in the winter when you when you breathe and there's that puff of kind of mist in the air and then it's gone James says that's what your life is like you can act all you know I'm permanent and I've got my plans and I know where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do and where I'm going to grow old and what my career is going to be and and you can have your plans and you can walk out of here and you can be down in an instant hit by a vehicle or whatever lightning bizarrely in these last couple of weeks suddenly your life can be gone and James says why do you think you're permanent You, you could be gone in a heartbeat and why do you think you can predict the future You're not in charge of the future. The one who's in charge is God. And so if it's his will, then this or that will happen. I wonder if that's something that we need to ponder. I wonder if if we kind of get up in the morning assuming we know what's going to happen for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. I wonder if, if that spills over in our lives at a low level in some form of arrogance or boasting or overconfidence or perhaps in anxiety. I know what should happen, but what if it doesn't? Maybe James 4, verses 13 to 18, is a, is a gentle rebuke that, that we need to be reminded, you're not in charge of your life. You don't know how long you've got. You don't know how things are going to work out. Don't be making decisions as if you're the one on the throne. And then he moves into the next section from 5, 1 to 6, and he, he talks about money. And here he does really seem to be getting harsh against the, the rich people out there. But I wonder if some of the, the, the issues can trickle down even for us, if we're still in this process of, of going from fallen to redeemed, from, from completely me on the throne to, okay, I'm, I'm trusting God. I wonder if maybe there's some, something here for us as well. 
notice that he's rebuking them to start with because all of their wealth is impermanent. It's not there forever. It's rusted, it's corroded, it's got moth-eaten holes in it, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's a good reminder that what we have in our bank isn't actually that trustworthy. Your ISA from five years ago isn't that amazing now. You know, the, the, the money kind of diminishes in value. You see things and they cost so much more than a few years ago and so all that saving doesn't quite buy what it used to. You can get wealthy, buy properties, do all sorts of things to build the wealth as if there's some security in that and it can just diminish very quickly. When the financial crisis happened, people that were uber wealthy lost it all instantly and then got very angry in, in, in a, as a result of that. But, but we can't trust in riches. We can't rely on, on those things as if they are forever. And so James then gets to kind of the issues here from about verse 4. Because of the impermanence or the, the fact that money is not forever, human nature will drive us to become a bit ruthless. Right? We, we, we kind of grab. You ever find yourself grabbing? trying to hold on, trying to keep. I know that, I know that that thing that uh, I've got, I should pay for, but I can get it online for free. It's a kind of grabby hoardiness, isn't it? That, you know, I'll just get, get a copy of yours. It's, it's nothing. It won't affect anyone. Well, it does because someone is losing out from that. Taxes, tax season. Oh, that's awkward. Can I make up any expenses? Because I don't want to give more than, than I can, any more than necessary because I need to hoard. You see, it's all the impulse of a human fallen flesh that doesn't trust that God's in charge and thinks that I've got to grab and I've got to keep. And so there's a ruthlessness towards taxes, towards others, towards those that we should be paying, those that we should be somehow helping instead. Uh, no, 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 don't give too much. Just give enough to, to look like you're giving something. Don't give too much. Don't pay too much. Get it as cheap as possible. And, and I'm not saying it's bad to, to barter where that's appropriate. But we kind of know, don't we, when we're grabbing because we're scared of letting it go to too high a level, where, where somehow we're trusting in our ability to keep money rather than trusting in God to provide. And so because of the impermanence of wealth, we can become ruthless. And because of our own selfishness, we can become, well, self-indulgent. You've lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5, fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So while other people are suffering, our tendency will be to enjoy it ourselves. You see, James is rebuking the rich out there, but I think he's kind of poking a little bit at the Christians to say, be careful you don't go in that direction because human nature will take us there, won't it? Our human nature will resist any money leaving our own uh, kind of pot of resource and then we will live as if we're kings. And it doesn't mean that we all drive the most expensive car because we're capable of turning the littlest thing into a self-indulgence. may not be able to afford the Mercedes but that cream cake. And we treat it like, a oh, this is just for me. And, and what is it saying? What is that attitude revealing? 
You see, the, the, the life in a fallen world often manifests itself in attitudes, attitudes of selfishness, attitudes of overconfidence, attitudes of boasting, attitudes of self-indulgence. And then we don't look like anything other than those around us. There's no difference to be seen. But James isn't just kind of having a go here. He's saying, no, this is not the way it should be. There's something better. There's something different. And so he goes on from verse 7 to kind of introduce a perspective that perhaps we've not quite grasped yet. And the perspective is right there in the first sentence. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, you may have heard that phrase, the coming of the Lord. If you read through the Bible, read through the New Testament, you'll discover that actually that's not just a Christian phrase. That is the great hope that Christians live with. That is the anchor point in our futures that enables us to live in our present with a completely radically different perspective because there's coming a point in time where God steps in, where the Lord comes. And because that day is coming, it affects the way we live now. And so let's read how he describes that effect. He says, he uses some illustrations here, you might like them. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's saying, okay, stop acting like you're in charge of the universe. You're not the master of the universe. God is. And that's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful because of verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Isn't that glorious? The one who's on the throne, the one who's in charge of what happens in your life this week is a God who is marked by compassion and mercy. Therefore, as a Christian, it is a privilege to put ourselves under him. It is a privilege to live our lives anticipating the day when we will see him face to face. And so as you go through this, there's example after example. In the middle of it, he says, stop grumbling about one another to one another. Grumbling makes no sense if you're looking for the Lord. And then he gives these illustrations. First of all, the farmer. Farmers are good examples to us and praise the Lord for farmers. And he blessed our church with one so we can all look at him. So you look at the farmer. He's embarrassed. You look at the farmer. He plants the seed, the crop, right? And then he waits for the rain and the sun and he's patient. He doesn't get all excited three weeks in and just go dig up the earth, seeing what he can find. He doesn't just wait a couple of months and then the first shoots, quick, get the combine harvester. He waits and waits and waits until it's fully ready. And as Christians, we can look at that and say, actually, that's like our lives. Instead of being frantic, instead of trying to grasp and grab and and sort of take control of the situation, Jesus is coming, 
and we can live patiently waiting for that day. Then he gives the illustration further down of the prophets. Uh, Take as an example of suffering and patience the prophets. Man, they had a tough time. Imagine being Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. Okay, Isaiah, I want you to go and speak to the people. Here am I, send me. Okay, they're not going to accept what you say, and they're not going to turn. They're going to be absolutely hardened and obstinate, and you're going to spend your entire career talking to them, and they're going to refuse to listen. How long? (laughs) Natural question. Very long time. Jeremiah, I want you to speak for me. Okay, Lord, I'd love to. I want you to tell the people that this enemy that's coming against you, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, you you need to surrender to him and go off into exile because I'm not going to rescue the people. Oh, but God, if I say that, they're going to treat me like a traitor. Yep. Go for it. Decades of ministry being called a traitor. Decades of ministry to people that were hardened and unresponsive. Hosea. I want you to experience what I've experienced. Okay. Marry a woman that's going to be unfaithful to you repeatedly. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. That's exactly what I've experienced. I want you to experience it so that you can speak for me. The prophets are incredible examples to us. I I sometimes struggle with a tough week. You know, sometimes I preach a message and it's like, you know, flat response. You're doing great today. But sometimes it's just, you know, facially there's nothing there. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up. These prophets, they just kept going. They were beaten up and thrown in a well and, you know, all this stuff that happened to them. I'm not suggesting you try it. But, but all of that happened and they just kept on going. Why? Because they were gripped by the reality of who God was. And then he gets to the ultimate example. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Yeah, he lost everything. Lost all his possessions, lost all of his children. Even his wife turned on him. And then after that, you discover his body kind of turns against him when, when Satan's allowed to go after his body. And Job is desperate. He's just broken by this whole thing. And yet he patiently waited. He didn't quit. He didn't curse God and die. He said, you know what? The Lord of all the earth is going to do the right thing. I'm going to trust him. That's incredible. And we go through our weeks with our, you know, often, for me, relatively minor inconveniences. I just got interrupted. You know, I'm being persecuted. <coughs> Excuse me. It's, it's ridiculous. Sometimes the, the level of struggle we have, and, and we're kind of wavering. And then you look at someone like Job, and you go, wow, look at the steadfastness of Job. But somehow in the midst of that, it wasn't that he was super strong. It wasn't that he drank iron brew or something. It was that he had a clear view of who God was. And that got him through it all. And so the same is true for us, whether we're prophets or called to suffer like Job, whether we're farmers or whether we're normal, the rest of us. Normal farmers, but normal the rest of us too. The key is that the Lord is compassionate and he's merciful. He's not a God to be taken lightly because he is the judge ready to come in and judge sin. He's ready to step in and deal with stuff. But for us, he's compassionate and he's merciful. And so if we think we can live the Christian life by focusing on ourselves and gritting our teeth and kind of really trying hard, we're going to trip up time and again. But if we fix our eyes on him, if we wait patiently for him, if our lives are lived 
as if only two days matter, today and that day, as if the only thing that mattered, it matters is that ultimately I'm going to see the Lord and I'm going to be with him. I wonder if that truth gripped us, what would our lives look like now? What would our business choices look like? What would our financial decisions look like? How would our giving be affected? How would our attitude to one another be different? How would it make a difference to the way that we make plans and strategies and decisions for ourselves, for even for our church? How would it be different if we were gripped all day, every day, by the fact that Jesus is coming back? And I'm going to see him. And he's going to welcome me home. And I'm not going to be living by faith I'm going to be living by sight. And I'm not going to be wrestling with, is God really as compassionate and merciful as the Bible says? I'm going to be seeing it with my own eyes. I love that bit in Revelation where John turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah who is worthy to open the seals. And he turns and he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, Jesus is bearing the scars, even today, of his demonstration of God's love for us. Is his compassion, is his mercy enough for us? Is it enough to live a life that isn't me on the throne, me taking charge, me making sure that I can control everything? Is his compassion and mercy enough to be giving ourselves and to be trusting fully everything to him? I think it is. And in order for us to keep that reality before us, we've got communion. That's why every week, most weeks, we have communion because we don't ever want to get too far away from that glimpse, that glorious glimpse of the compassion and mercy of God demonstrated on the cross. He loved us that much. And he asks us to trust him. As we trust him, it will change our lives from the inside out. And gradually, we will be living what James is describing. And we won't be living the things James is rebuking. But for now, maybe we need to say, oh, Lord, I'm still a work in progress. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your mercy. Please keep working on me. The boasting or the anxiety, the I know what's best the hoarding, the self-indulgence. Lord, keep working on me. Give me a glimpse of the cross again and keep working on me until the day when I glimpse you face to face forever. Let's pray. Father, we're sitting here before you as a group of works in progress so in need of your transforming power in our lives. We ask you, first of all, Lord, by your Spirit to convict of everything that doesn't fit who we are if we're yours. Convict us of attitudes and ways of functioning that aren't pleasing to you. And Lord, we pray more than that that you'd give us a greater glimpse of the cross, a greater glimpse of your love, your compassion, your mercy for us. And give us that hope deep inside that one day, maybe one day this week, this life will be finished and we will be with you. We look forward to that day and Lord, we pray that that day will mark this day and tomorrow and the day after. Let our lives be different because we're gripped 
with the anticipation of seeing you face to face. We love you and we thank you for all that you've done and all that you've given, which is absolutely everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.